0: What's exciting, and also fearful, is you're talking about taking over the human evolutionary story.
1: Welcome to Science Town, a podcast about the most unique research community on the planet. With every episode, we will bring you cutting-edge tech, science, and startup culture through the eyes of pioneering men and women their journeys cross-disciplines and cross-borders in the pursuit of world-changing science.
2: Hello, I'm Nicholas DeMille.
3: And I'm Ben Stevens.
2: Welcome to Episode 9 of Science Town. Cheap, rapid genetic sequencing, big data, supercomputing, and more is opening up new possibilities for medicine at the individual level. But rapid advancements in CRISPR, cyborgism, biohacking, and more have raised safety concerns and ethical quandaries about who has the right to push the envelope and who does not. In this episode, we sit with some of the world's leading experts on personalized medicine to find out where the science is headed and what that means for you.
0: There are other approaches that have been used in the past, but really they're almost all being replaced by CRISPR because it's cheaper, it's more accurate, it's more effective. And honestly, CRISPR is today's technology. That's Françoise Baylis.
2: She's a research professor at Dalhousie University and the author of Altered Inheritance, CRISPR and the Ethics of Human Genome Editing.
0: And who knows what it will be in the next 10, 15, 20 years. So The technology itself will probably evolve. Right now, though, I think what we're seeing is the possibility of this hypothesis, if you will, that we could make these kinds of changes getting closer to reality because of this latest uh, opportunity to do what we call genome editing. And so in that context, I think the world has changed in 2012 with the understanding that we're possibly setting ourselves on a particular path.
2: Right. Um, I think in the popular imagination, you know, it's um, making you, giving you the ability to stay up longer or be smarter or whatever. But what what are these uh, changes that you're proposing actually aiming to do?
0: Well, that's a really interesting and I think important question, Mm -hmm. because in terms of the conversation right now, the focus is on dealing with heritable diseases. So how might we be able to ensure that children are born healthy without a particular heritable disease. But the reality of it is, and I think many people see this quite clearly, is that that would not ultimately be its future. That would not be the main reason that people would probably use this technology and the right. reason for that is there are other technologies currently available which are not only cheaper and already available they're actually safer okay. and so what kind of prospective parent is going to consent to the manipulation of their genetic material and whatever the potential consequences are of that mm-hmm. when they could just have a different embryo you know come Uh, you know, into being and and into life. And so really, um, I think what most people are focused on with this technology is the potential for enhancement, the potential for improvement, the potential for non-health-related changes. And that's where you hear people talking about things that are either cosmetic or increasing IQ, increasing athleticism. It's that whole imagination which is being unleashed with this technology. Mm
2: And, and why, and you know, CRISPR ha, is no longer just in the realm of uh, the academy. It is really leaked out into the popular imagination. So why has that technology sort of
0: rocketed to prominence? Well, I think what happened is a year ago, a little bit more than a year ago now, a Chinese scientist actually went forward and did this work with human embryos, put those modified embryos back into a woman, and children were born. Now, the context in which this science was done Mm -hmm. arguably fit the discourse or the rhetoric around looking at uh, a health condition because these embryos were being genetically modified such that the offspring, the children that would be born, Mm -hmm. would have resistance to HIV. So it looks like it's kind of still in the realm of health. Mm However, there was a huge international outcry at the time saying, at the very least, the science was premature. We didn't have information about safety or efficacy. And other people, people like myself, would go further and say who gave you the right to decide to step over that line and start doing this kind of controversial science? So we had that major event um, in November of 2018. And for anybody who's been particularly interested in this area of science, Mm -hmm. we had another major event two weeks ago, which is that that scientist has been uh, sanctioned. Uh, He will be going to jail for three years and has been fined 3 million yuan. So that's a pretty dramatic thing to have done. Um, And it's one of the things I will talk about tomorrow. What does it mean to think about uh, being a scientist at risk of going to jail or getting a major fine? Um,
2: Yeah. Well, you waded a bit into the ethics conversation there. So let's go with it. Um, uh, Who is the the body or, or what are the bodies that are responsible for enforcing ethics? And then To that point, uh, who is responsible for setting down the red lines with those ethics?
0: Well, you've just asked sort of the million dollar (laughs) question, a $10 million, $100 million question. I mean, what's happened in the recent past is we really have moved into global science. So it is no longer, you know, a scientist in a city or in a lab or in a country. Scientists move. if you're talking about clinical trials, the research participants move. Even when you're talking about tissues, the tissues get shipped, the DNA gets shipped. So right. we're really doing a different kind of science. So that's the first thing. Mm-hmm. The second thing is we don't actually have anything like an international government that could in fact say, these are the rules. Right. What we have had over the years are things like declarations. So we have the Declaration of Helsinki, for example. We have the Nuremberg Code, which has to do with research involving humans coming out after World War II. We have um, the International Bioethics Committee at UNESCO, which puts out directives. But what you're seeing right now is that it's sort of everybody's bailiwick and nobody's. Right. In this context, there are currently two things going on. There is an international commission that has been sponsored by national academies. So these would be academies of science in countries around the world. Mm -hmm. The Royal Society, for example, in England, the National Academy of Science and National Academy of Medicine in the United States. In Canada, we have the Royal Society of Canada. So basically, you've got a commission made up of representatives of these various national academies that is currently looking at this Mm -hmm. and is expected to report this spring. Separate from that, you also have WHO, which is the World Health Organization, which also has an expert advisory committee, Mm -hmm. and its makeup is actually quite different because it's not people that are being named by science academies. I'm a member of that committee, And we are looking specifically at issues of ethics and governance. Mm -hmm. And what we're hoping is that with the impermature of that organization, that our recommendations will have some kind of an impact on the world. But we recognize that at the end of the day, nations will do as nations please. Um, And so you're really looking at moral suasion in a way that I think is going to be very different. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it is the future that we need to think about. How do we get people to start thinking about science collaboratively how do we get people to start focusing on the common good Um, and that's what I think is really interesting and amazing about CRISPR because I think if we can get this right we will change the way we think about the enterprise of science and its purpose and part of my mission is to try and communicate that its purpose ought not to just be profit. was not written for me and my peers. It's not an academic book for academics to sit back and sort of pontificate on. Right. It really um, is meant for the general public. So that's an important thing, I think, in terms of the mm-hmm. target audience. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that's important is I think I've really tried here to have it be contemporary. So the case I spoke of that took place in November of 2018, it's discussed in length at length in the book. The response to that um, is also discussed. So afterwards, there was a call for a moratorium, and then there was a debate about this call for a moratorium and what a moratorium did or didn't mean. It became quite interesting because three of the scientists who are widely recognized as the pioneers of this technology, Mm -hmm. um, in fact, are involved in the debate, both directly and indirectly. And in the end, several of us came together and published an article in Nature called Adopt a Moratorium. And in that context, two out of the three CRISPR pioneers signed on. Mm-hmm. So again, I think it's really interesting because it's it's bringing us pretty close to contemporary discussion and debate. It's showcasing who are the players, how are they positioning themselves, and what's at stake. And mm-hmm. um, What I try to say very clearly in the book, what's at stake is the world we want to live in. And What I'm therefore saying to scientists specifically, but then to the broader community is, stop and think about that question. That's the most important question about CRISPR. What kind of world do you want to live in? Mm -hmm. And only when you have an answer to that question can you then turn and look at the specifics of CRISPR. Then you can say, and how will CRISPR help me build this world? Uh, And I think that that's what I meant when I said, if we can do CRISPR right, We could actually change the way we do science because we would be thinking about the world we're trying to create for ourselves, for our children, for our children's children. We would understand that those are really important decisions and that there are lots of forks in the road. And I think we might take different decisions rather than just kind of being carried along by the enthusiasm of something we call innovation. Um, You know, without actually understanding that not everything that we do that's different is, you know, imbued with the positiveness of the word innovation. Mm. Um, Innovations can be dangerous, they can be hurtful, um, but most importantly, they may not help us build the world that we wanna live in. So I think we'll do better science if we can pull back as a community and think about where we're trying to get to.
1: You're listening to Sciencetown.
4: In drug delivery, we are combining our knowledge of uh, chemistry, physics, mathematics, pharmaceutical sciences, Mm -hmm. medical sciences, with perhaps a little bit of ingenuity, innovation, business Mm acumen, and of course engineering, in order to come up with improved formulations for patients. That's
2: Nicholas Pepas the Cockerell Family Regents Chair at the University of Texas at Austin.
4: We want to improve the quality of life of our patients. Without mentioning any specific disease, I will mention that many uh, patients are used to a particular treatment. Mm-hmm. For example, taking uh, capsules twice or three times a day or having shots given to them four times a day Very often, many of the patients cannot really do that themselves, Mm -hmm. they are afraid or whatever. And so we want to develop something new, something different, something original, so that they don't suffer. We question all the time the present modes of delivery. So that's really what drug delivery is and where it is going especially the last 30 years, Mm. it has become an extremely important subject for many scientists. Frankly, if you look at some of the best journals right now in the field, science, which I represent, nature, and so on, you will see many of the papers making comments. And this has possible applications in drug delivery. (laughs) This is not what was happening 30 years ago. However, we live in a world where we as scientists are responsible citizens as well. And we have to ask the question, all these new systems, new products, new medical devices that we develop, how are they going to be passed to the patient? Mm. Who is going to pay for this? And this is a huge problem. And many of us don't appreciate it. And we start with the idea, oh, I will develop this new system, and so on. And we don't understand it has to somehow be approved, depending on the country, by the governments, by the comp- pharmaceutical companies, mm-hmm. uh, this formulation over another formulation, and, of course, by the insurance companies or whoever really pays for the products
3: and then how does uh, nanotechnology offer
4: solutions there perhaps? if we really think how present pharmaceutical systems work they work mostly at the nano level Mm -hmm. yet what we try to present is in simple words tablets capsules injections and so on so many of us have questioned can we really redesign our systems so that they are at the same nanoscale, at the same level as the cells, mm-hmm. as the proteins, as what, whatever we're trying to deliver. So nanotechnology has come in and has really given a new optic, a new view of how we can solve a problem. Instead of simply delivering a drug, say, by an injection, you try to find a way to target it, to present it directly to the cells that hopefully uh, are responsible for a particular disease. So it's really a very natural uh, problem. Does it work? It works in some cases, not yet in other cases. So there are some uh, some people that are more questioning, really, the implications and the impact of nanotechnology in our field. I'm always optimistic. Mm-hmm. And I'm optimistic because I work for the patients. I do not want to come to governments and give them an advice to stop supporting nanotechnology without really being 100% sure that we cannot get something better. And for the time being, I believe we can get better products, better devices, better systems if we work with nanotechnology.
3: One of your areas of research is type 1 diabetes. Why does delivery of insulin into the body pose so many challenges currently?
4: Insulin is a very important therapeutic agent that has to be delivered to type 1 diabetic patients and sometimes to type 2. It is a protein. It is a relatively sensitive protein that works only in specific pH environments, Mm -hmm. only, of course, in specific temperatures, only under specific conditions. What would be a simple way of delivering insulin if it were not injection? It would be swallowing insulin. But if you swallow insulin, it can be destroyed already in the saliva, in the esophagus, and so on. So the question becomes, If we want to get better methods of formulation and delivery of insulin for type 1 diabetic patients, we have to bypass some of the problems that we have with the standard formulations and deliver the insulin intact in the blood, because Mm -hmm. that's where it's going to work. For the last 40 years, that has been the major effort of our group and other groups, many other groups, to come up with systems that can deliver insulin that way. It's an extremely sensitive proteinic protein molecule. It changes very easily. You can have change in the amino acids in it and so on, and that may affect the so-called pharmacological impact, pharmacological bioavailability in the systems. So this is really why we are looking at new methods very carefully, and we are always trying to improve uh, the delivery of insulin in type 1 diabetic patients. Improvement means a high content of insulin, intact, Mm -hmm. intact, high quality, and at the same time, lower pain, if I may use that word, for the patients than the present formulations. Otherwise, a patient would not be using that new system.
3: And uh, final question on the interrelation with with people. What does it bring to your work, the the fact that you interact with the patients who are the recipients of your work? Oh,
4: it brings so much. You cannot imagine. Because you are in an office, you are in a laboratory, you design something new, you know the field very well. But when you see in the eyes of the patient, the satisfaction, the freedom, it's something incredible. If I may, uh, about 20 years ago, we started working with a major uh, company that was developing intraocular lenses. Lenses for cataract. Mm -hmm. And at some stage in this development, I was able to be in the presence of some of the patients who had just been uh, given my new lenses. And there they had removed the bandages. That's 20, 25 years ago. So things are a little bit different now. And this was this 72, 75-year-old lady. And she was elated. And they told her the inventor was close by. She came to me. She grabbed my hands and said, my boy, you saved my life. I can see my grandchildren again. I can see my granddaughter uh, getting married and so on. And you know, I don't want to get (laughs) very emotional now, but you know, that moment you realize what you do. It's not the awards. It's not the academies. It's nothing. It's not being at CAUST or being at the University of Texas. It's helping these people. And uh, so that's really what continues driving us.
3: <laughs> Great. I think that's a, a, the perfect place to stop. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for your time. Thank, Thank you.
1: you. Cutting-edge tech, science, and startup culture. ScienceTown.
2: What are DNA nanomaterials? Because I, I, I'm not sure that that's, a, that's a, as a term something in common parlance. So.
5: Okay, so DNA nanomaterials are basically materials like molecules and mm-hmm. structures that are made of DNA.
2: That's Hannah D. Sleiman, Professor of Chemistry and Canada Research Chair in DNA Nanoscience at McGill University
5: you might want to think of DNA like a Lego building block. I I mean, it really is like that. So we use it, basically, we take it out of the biological context. We know that DNA is the molecule that uh, our body uses to store information, to transmit information, right? Right. Uh, But uh, billions of years of evolution have made DNA this amazing molecule. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, so now we just, you know, kind of found out or discovered that we can actually take it and make it in our laboratories and use it to make structures, to make, uh, uh, you know, cages and tubes and all sorts of uh, different structures uh, yeah. that you can do with them. You so s- that's what the DNA nanomaterial is.
2: You say make it. So how, how does that work exactly? Are you having um, yeast or, or some other sort
5: of small molecule? No, they- we're not making it from biological sources. Mm. You can make it uh, by synthesis. So you can oh. just make it like a chemical. So d- DNA is a molecule, so it is a chemical, really as well, right. and uh, over the last 50 years, uh, people have made uh, uh, like engineering advances that where now we have these machines, and these machines are called DNA synthesizers. And what all you do is you basically put the building blocks, like the little bases, if you want, of DNA, sure. uh, in bottles, mm-hmm. and then you program the sequence of the DNA that you want, and then this thing just makes them for you. And you know, in, in a few hours, you just get your DNA, and and then you can modify it you can change it and so it you know you use it like a molecule basically right. yeah. so
2: you almost have a 3d printer for yeah. DNA
5: that's right exactly wow. exactly it's fantastic yes so
2: why did you choose DNA in particular as a molecule
5: so I was I was just talking about evolution it's mm. it turns out that DNA if you if you think of it as a molecule like a, a building block to make stuff um, is a very Smart material, okay. and what I mean by that is, is that you can really program it. You, you know, you have uh, basically on the DNA a sequence like ATGC, basically, and yeah. how they're organized. Once you know that sequence, you know exactly what it's going to do, and so then you can actually make it into different shapes and different structures for different applications. Whereas, if you, for example, say, I want, like, why aren't you using a protein for that? Right. For example, right. uh, proteins are much more complicated, and a little bit less programmable uh, right now given what we know about you know computation and, and everything right. so so that at the end of the day when you have the, 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 the sequence of the protein you actually don't know what the structure is going to be like a priori in the beginning whereas with DNA ah. you definitely know you know that it's like the quintessential double helix right, right. you know right. so it, you know that it is going to be like that and it's going to have a certain specific shape and size and so then you can actually it's almost like an algorithm it's almost like uh, a computer program uh, building structures then using DNA. Right. So, th- so this is why you know we think it's a really powerful molecule for building structures.
2: Right. And so then, uh, what are your, what are you and your team trying to accomplish? Uh, I think in particular, drug delivery sort of comes to mind. That's right. But what
5: else? So, so drug delivery um, is is a, is is a fantastic field. Thirty years uh, of, of fantastic research, and really the the theme of this uh, of this uh, whole uh, web is is a personalized medicine. Yeah. So drug delivery is central to personal Personalized medicine uh, but drug delivery has some challenges right now mm-hmm. and we're trying to overcome some of the challenges with our structures so for example one of the challenges is uh, you can deliver you can you can put a drug inside a container um, but what you really want is the container to stay closed and to only open let's say in a cancer cell you don't want it to open in normal cells because right. uh, let's say you have a chemotherapeutic inside like uh, some some you know chemotherapy for cancer mm-hmm. that's usually toxic you just want it to be uh, delivered only to a cancer cell, not to a normal cell, and so that's difficult with current techniques in in uh, in drug delivery. And we think that, and we have uh, demonstrated that DNA structures can actually solve this problem. Can mm. actually solve this problem of like selective delivery of therapeutics.
2: Um, has anyone raised any objections, uh, this, this being uh, something that might also naturally occur in, in humans yeah, and pretty much everything else alive?
5: That's very true.
2: You're, you're putting DNA in, so, so what, what implications might that have?
5: It's a very good question. Mm-hmm. So um, what we do, because we have a DNA synthesizer and we're not using DNA from biological sources, mm-hmm. is we modify the DNA chemically. We change it. We change the structure a little bit so it looks a bit like DNA, but it doesn't act like DNA in the body. Mm. Um, and so it's kind of like an artificial form, if you want, of the DNA. Just a little bit of changes here and there, and nothing in your body actually recognizes it anymore as DNA. Um, and so you can safely deliver it. Uh, you uh, Usually, you know, with these DNA modifications, you don't even have a, a, an immune response. Mm. Uh, but... We have to always be mindful, whatever it is that we make, uh, of the biological implications. So it takes a very long time to develop something that's going to go into the body, sure. uh, even with the like this modified DNA, if you want.
2: And you run the Sleiman lab.
5: That's right. Um,
2: so what, are there any other things that you guys are working towards, or is there, are you very finely focused no, on that?
5: No, actually, we <laughs> are working quite a bit on a, a number of things. So uh, one of the applications is drug delivery and biology and cancer. So that's a big area for us. Um, we also work on diagnostics. So we work on basically trying to find fast and cheap ways to figure out uh, the disease and the disease progression, and, and because DNA can actually also do that for you. Yeah. Um, we are working on genomics, so ways to very, very quickly sequence your DNA. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that's in collaboration with companies. Uh, we're also working on materials basically, uh, creating materials that, that have uh, optical properties like that have light properties or electrical properties that are very interesting. Um, and actually, I kind of like as a sort of an umbrella, if you mm-hmm. want. Uh, we really want to understand how molecules come together to make these really organized structures. I mean, this is kind of like the uh, the, the overarching theme in our lab,
2: basically. Right. Right to to what ends diagnostic and therapeutic? That's isn't?
5: correct, exactly okay. to mm. the ends of diagnostics and therapeutics. But at mm. the end of the day, in the in the, at the very beginning of this process, we have to make the structures in right. order to do the studies, and we want to understand how to make these because they're not. You know, simple to make, right? Exactly. Yeah.
2: Yeah. You seem very passionate about the vernacular um, uh, uses of of this molecule. In a way, why do you think this one in particular sort of gets you so excited?
5: It gets me excited because it is so programmable. Mm -hmm. Um, You know there's many other molecules I mean we have an infinite number of molecules in the laboratory mm-hmm. um, and I and I guess it's it's hard for a chemist to convince other people that other molecules are not as smart as DNA but just to But just to think about the fact that, uh, you know, we have billions of years of evolution that have made this molecule the way it is and how selective it is. And and so we're just taking advantage of that. But it is quite special, this molecule. It's just, and and the fact that you can actually take it completely out of biology and just use it like a Lego uh, building block is also just fascinating because now you can control materials so well. I mean, there's people now in my field who are trying to actually make uh, 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 electronic devices using, using this. So rather than a computer chip made of, you know, uh, semiconductor sure. stuff, you know, you make it, have it make itself, essentially, not right. fabricate it. Just, you know, put the molecules together and they make themselves into this circuit. Right. So uh, that, it's just, it's fascinating that way.
2: It is indeed. Thank you. And thank you so much for, for joining us. We really appreciate it.
5: Thank you. All right. Cheers.
2: Thanks.
1: Crossing Disciplines and Crossing Borders, Science Town.
6: So I'm a professor of electrical engineering. I started my PhD on DNA sequencing on a chip. So this was like when the DNA sequencing was a big deal and it was like $15 million to do this. Nowadays, you can do that for $1,000. That's Khalid Salama, professor of electrical engineering at KAUST. That's how I started into the area of bioengineering, biomedical devices. And at the time, from a point of view of electrical engineering, this was like science fiction. I mean, we go to conferences and people are like, oh, this is useless. I mean, like, what are you talking about? But then fast forward, and this is becoming like a fact, how to actually develop sensors, which actually looks into certain biomarkers in your sweat, in your saliva, in your blood, to figure out that you might have certain uh, predisposition to certain type of diseases. That helps a lot with uh, early detection of certain diseases. But at the same time, you could also uh, use them to continuously monitoring your blood sugar all the time so that you can actually and accurately give you the right doses that you need from uh, for insulin for diabetic patients. So I work on sensors, and these sensors could be wearable sensors, could be implantable sensors, and these sensors you actually interact with your body in order to sense some uh, biomarker or some kind of a, a physical feature, and then we take an action, and the action is in the form of drug delivery. So oftentimes I work with chemists who actually develop certain drugs and figure out the mechanism of actually delivering them into your bloodstream while they need the information coming from our hardware. Recently, we have been generating a lot of uh, data from our sensors. So this data, most of the time it could be noise. So you need actually to work with people from statistics and from um, artificial intelligence and computer science to actually sift through this data and figure out what's useful and what's not useful. And this was only possible in the last few years with the advancement of big computers, lots of processing power that you can do on the spot. what's exciting you in, in that area at the moment i mean there are so many things that are exciting me but i think the most excited people are my students because each one of them is like okay come with uh, every day was like oh i found this new application and this would be cool uh, one of the big things that we are looking into is not treating diseases but in general well-being i yeah. mean this is actually taking healthcare to the next level we are interested in prevention not in the curing because on the long term. I mean, prevention is much, much more cost effective. And it's also once you are have certain diseases or you're sick, it's actually not a good feeling. But if we can manage to prevent you from getting sick, I think that's actually what everyone that's the goal for everyone. And so now we are looking into very, very early detection of certain types of cancers. I mean, we have been doing a good job treating cancers so far, but not good enough. I mean, like we haven't been able to actually uh, figure out a a cure for cancer. But the general consensus, if you can detect them early on, Mm -hmm. you can do a much, much better in the treatment. So we are looking into uh, certain types of cells that are circulating in your blood. Uh, which is commonly referred to as liquid biopsy. And if we can detect these cells or these hormones in your blood, maybe we can actually make some judgment about your, um, may you are going to be getting cancer or you have early stage cancer, and then that will help a lot with the treatment. We don't want to wait until we it's confirmed that you have cancer and then you start the treatment. Sometimes it's okay, sometimes it's actually too late. Yeah. So So this is one of the big projects that I'm looking into right now. Another thing is looking into uh, bacteria in our water supply. And there is a big push right now for sustainability where we are recycling the water that we are using and not using fresh water they call Mm. this grey water but the problem with that is that you really need to be continuously monitoring the water supply because you are doing and that requires a lot of sensors requires a lot of technology in order to figure out how much treatment do you need and whether it's actually treatment at the uh, plant or treatment at the local play house or a building that you're in
3: great i think that's a nice point to stop thank you so much for your time thank you so much
1: You're listening to Sciencetown.
3: You are a cyborg in that you have an NFC chip in your hand. What abilities does this give you and why did you choose to have it in the first place? <laughs>
7: So, and and if, if you're not familiar, NFC stands for near field communication, mm-hmm. which is also kind of um, a hassle because actually in order for for the chip to do anything, it has to communicate with uh, a smartphone or, or any smart device that is NFC enabled. And I have to put it super, super close and located uh, where, where the NFC chip is in, in the phone.
2: That scientist, former venture capital investor, futurist, and science fiction writer, Elsa Sotiriadis.
7: I I have a version that is um, you know, compatible with most NFC um, devices out there, and NFC is exactly the same thing. For instance, that Apple Pay uses, right? You just mm-hmm. tap, and it pays. You can do the same on the Apple Watch. I think it's an interesting development um, to think that in a future, um, not not too far away, we'll be able to, you know, replace credit cards or have additional means of payments just by hand swipe. And this this NFC chip has. Um so so it, it lets you program anything of your wildest imaginations that fits into eight hundred eighty six bytes. <laughs> so it's it's not it's not a lot, right? No. And uh, it so so it has a, an antenna. It's powered externally by the device, so it doesn't need batteries. And um, I think the the wavelength is thirteen point six megahertz or something like that. so it's really low. Uh, you have to be really close for that. And the reason I got it is very simple. Um, I just want to push, um, you know, breakthrough technologies into the hands of people, literally and metaphorically. Because we we are surrounded by everyday technologies that are accelerating exponentially, exponentially fast, mm. and we are at a time where we have a choice to make. So we can either take the future that is issued to us, that is sold to us, or we can we can become builders and creators and and makers to to co-create our own future.
3: Right, and uh, just just focusing on it for a little bit longer. Um, whose idea was it? Who who put it in? Did it hurt? All of those <laughs> questions.
7: Yes, and and a yes to all. So 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 the backstory is I worked at uh, an amazing company uh, based in Vienna. Um, during a PhD sabbatical. So, uh, and, and just so you know, so, so I did it at Imperial College London. Um, and the other half of the PhD was actually at Hong Kong University in Hong Kong, at the other end of the mm-hmm. world. So, I did a PhD sabbatical, ended up in Vienna working in startups and breakthrough technologies. And I, I had, um, so the company put together um, an amazing, huge event, very famous event called Pioneers Festival they have it every year and it's to support the startup ecosystem and and help accelerate these you know fostering these connections mm. and so forth and um i got to to do a keynote session which was incredible for me because i just was this extremely awkward geeky shy PhD student who has been locked up in a lab not talking to normal humans <laughs> and i was like what, whoa whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> what, what is this And I saw a couple of things that, that that I wanted to follow. So I had a, I had one guy, um, a friend who's a composer, I think based in Scotland or, or somewhere England. So definitely UK. Mm -hmm. And he does something fascinating. He takes, um, genomic data. So four letters, um, gene sequences and turns them into beautiful classical music. Wow! So you can take a DNA sequence of any organism, and and make music from it. You can turn your own genome into music. And I thought this is a really beautiful idea to to kind of make science and genomics more accessible to people. And then at the other end, I saw uh, you know NFC microchips and and how we're taking all these sensors and miniaturizing them bringing them closer and closer and closer to the human body into the human body and i thought that's really interesting as well so i this just sparked the idea of why don't we put this together and i wanted to to do a live chip implantation and a demo right away of something that hasn't been done before mm-hmm. and so you have some pretty cool other things just to give a shout out so so there's um, a guy who has hooked up his chip in such a way that he can make cryptocurrency payments by hand swipe. And I think that's pretty neat, but I'm I'm nowhere near as technically advanced as, as that. And so w- w- what we did on stage in the end was, I took um, an amazing paper by a pioneering group in, I think they're based in San Diego. They are, um, you know, uh, the researchers around the really famous scientist and geneticist, um, Craig Venter. Mm-hmm. And he has the Chase CVI, the Craig Venter, uh, Chase Cra- uh, Venter Institute, mm-hmm. um, based in San Diego. And they created a synthetic organism where they kind of bootstrap the whole genome. So it's like if you take the hard drive of a computer mm-hmm. and you, you compress it down to the bare minimum. And so this organism was a synthetic organism containing less than 500 genes or around 500 genes from originally 1,000, I don't even know, but lots and lots of genes. Yeah. And I thought, let's you know take this and turn it into music and see how it sounds and trigger this by hand swipe. And the other function it did was to tweet by hand swipe. Yeah.
3: But I guess um, science and human augmentation are frequently portrayed negatively in popular science fiction. So um, do you try what to offer or what alternative vision can you offer in your fiction and as a keynote speaker?
7: Yeah, I, I love that question. Um, I think... On one hand, so I so so the first um, science fiction that I read was uh, Jules Verne when when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's he, he was French, uh, hugely influential, and he wrote these beautiful stories about exploration and you know pushing human nature. And it was very very technical. He he did tons of research to make his fictional inventions realistic. Mm-hmm. And actually, he kind of predicted the uh, NASA's Apollo 11 mission, putting people on the moon and so forth. Um, but, but long story short, um, I think, you know, in, in some ways we're getting tired of dystopias. Yeah. And one of my favorite genres is, you know, science fiction dystopias and, and cyberpunk. And cyberpunk literally means um, high tech, low life. And I think we need a new antithesis to that because I'm, I'm a techno-optimist. I wanna, and, and I believe that we can use science and technology to uplift um, humanity and, and really create innovations that, and, and make amazing new tools accessible to all of us. And so in, in my, my own fiction, I have a book called Replicon. It's kind of, I, I call it post cyberpunk. So it kind of takes a cyberpunk setting that I I love so much, and many of us do, but it puts a new spin on it in portraying a city built with biology um, that is actually you know uplifting, and you know people are they have advanced scientific tools like CRISPR and and genome editing. In, in abundance but then you know it's still a story and it needs a plot and, and a middle and 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 inciting incidents and all that so so there's something dark lurking behind this facade but i i'm tired of kind of the same old tropes with you know technology is bad and it's there to oppress people i don't think so i don't think so it's a tool and like any other tool it depends in you know in in whose hands it is so. I'm I'm a techno optimist. My my writing reflects that, mm-hmm. and I think we we need to um, show show a different side of science and technology.
3: People would argue that having a pacemaker or some other enhancements confer an unfair advantage, but further biohacking developments conceivably could do that. So, how should we deal with these and other ethical considerations?
7: Um, regardless of of the specific technology, the frontiers are are really blurring. Like, where what what does it mean to be human in the age of technology? What does it mean if our entire lives get 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 ruled by by algorithms, which they are. What does it mean to hand over all our data to an app and, and let that app track our every move? What does it mean when, you know, this kind of gets an interface with biology? Mm-hmm. And I think the pacemaker question is, is interesting because I think, you know, when when there's a medical necessity it's, it's very easy to make the case. Yeah. So you have, you know, someone suffering from a debilitating disease, and there are about 6,000 known genetic diseases that are, you know, not just a minor impediment to life, but f- either fatal or, or hugely debilitating. So I think in this case, it's, you know, the easy answer is, yes, absolutely, we, we need to use all the tools at our disposal to, to alleviate suffering. Mm-hmm. Then there's the other part, right? Like where, where does alleviation and stopping suffering uh, end? And where does it become enhancement and superhuman? And when does it become about perfection? Yeah. So you can, you can, uh, I think there are trials um, where they they implanted electrodes in a monkey that couldn't walk. So part in the brain part on the spine, to allow that monkey to walk again. And I think we can do the same in people. Um, There have been lots of cases. And, you know, again, that's the easy case. But what if someone wanted to not just walk again, but attain superhuman speed? What if someone didn't want to cure blindness with a a gene therapy, which is, I think, one of the first gene therapies now being developed or already on the market? Uh, Hugely expensive. Um, Many gene therapies we have are are a million dollars or two million Mm. dollars insane so so sure we can cure blindness or what if someone wants to attain perfect vision what if someone wants to attain superhuman vision like infrared uv x-ray like Mm. crazy and or you know have have uh artificial retinas and and augmented reality layers blended in in into their vision which is coming um i think Actually, a, a area that that really concerns me is if we look at personal genomics, where we see this kind of promise and peril scenario really unfold, mm. uh, like on a daily basis. Literally, yeah. we had the the um, designer babies done illegally in China. Okay. Uh, this huge, uh, led to a huge uproar in the scientific community, um, but. Designer babies are not futuristic. They are already reality. Any sufficiently motivated individual with access to information can make a designer baby at home. They, you can, you know, purify uh, proteins, genome editing proteins. You can shuttle them into the cell. You can, you know, you you can be pretty creative today. Um, and I think we we have when when we look at personal genomics, so. Um, you, you collect your saliva in a little tube, it's uh, kind of disgusting and you need quite a lot, I think, and, and you get it sequenced. And there are the, the big established companies, um, you know, there, there is real science with Ancestry. It makes sense. Um, we still lack a diverse data set, which, you know, everything tech and science is, is suffering from. In um, some basic genetic traits which are, you know, scientifically well-established and, and that's fine. And I encourage people to learn about ancestry because what you see is we're, we are all related. We're all so similar. Uh, but the other side of that is, the, and, and I saw this in my time as, a, uh, as an investor, there are lots and lots of companies springing up in this space with really, in the best case, highly dubious scientific claims. And that's where I have a problem because it's, it's unethical. Mm -hmm. It's scientifically completely irresponsible. And it's very problematic because what happens is you have a genetic testing kit, like there's one today or two even, um, where you claim you can uncover the genetically encoded talents of your child based on really n- no science today sure no. in the future we'll have this data uh, there's a you know tsunami coming of genomic data that will transform our understanding of health but today not not today mm. and so parents are changing the lives of their children already based on really dubious data and i'm worried that we are opening a genetic supermarket where prospective parents can buy artificially designed gametes with, I don't know, I hate to use the word, superior genetic qualities. And we are creating a real world consumerist Gattaca. And we need to make sure, I hate the word, but we we need to talk about it. I I want to help make sure we're not turning eugenics into the new consumerism. Mm,
3: And not turbocharging. exactly
7: exactly and that's that's part of the motivation that drove me to to you know embrace my love for science fiction and actually write it because science fiction science fiction's job isn't to predict the future and invent gadgets it's really to foster dialogue and science fiction really creates this this urgently needed link between the the breakthrough technologies of today and the future scenarios that we can create. So it gives us empathy because narrative is, is a huge empathy engine.
3: Thank you so much for your time.
7: Thanks very much for having me, Ben. Thanks.
2: Science Town is produced by Mark Bowes and Alex Arias. I'm Nicholas DeMille with co-host Ben Stevens. Thanks for listening.
1: This podcast is a production of King Abdullah University of Science and Technology, also known as KAUST. You can find us on all major social channels, wherever you get your podcasts, and at Sciencetown.kaust.edu.sa.